Thanks for downloading show 59 of the C-Suite podcast being produced in partnership with Taito, a recently launched European PR agency that positions themselves as focusing on the colliding worlds of technology, science and innovation. Now, Taito have just launched a new report, the Taito Tech 500 Power List, which consists of the top 500 technology influencers in the UK. And that's what we're going to be chatting about on this episode of the show. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and I'm joined here in the studios of Broadcast Specialist Marketeers by the co-founders of Taito. Um, So that's Ellen Raphael, who is their head of insight, and Brendan Craigie, their managing partner. Alongside Ellen and Brendan, I'm thrilled to say that we also have two of the top 10 technology influencers who are featured in the uh, power list that we're obviously going to be discussing today. Uh, So first we have Dr. Sue Black, OBE. Uh, Sue is a technology evangelist and UK government advisor on digital services. And also here in the studio is Jeremy Waite, IBM's global leader of CMO programs. Uh, So a pretty packed studio, um, but not satisfied with just chatting to these guys. I also spoke to another member of that top 10 influencer list yesterday and that was Anne Bowden the CEO of Starling Bank and so we'll hear some of my chat to Anne a little later in the show so welcome to all of you uh, to the podcast Brendan and Ellen before we come uh, to talk about the report itself and hear from these uh, these top technology influencers let's just get a bit of background on, on Taito and, and why you've decided to uh, put this list together I think in um, in terms of in conceiving the new agency, Taito, one of the things we were really interested in was to look at how influence has changed over the years. So we've been, you know, operating the communications industry for about twenty years, um, and so we really want to get a sense of of how that's changed. And I, I think we hear a lot about um, social media influencers, but we thought, you know, what about journalists? What about politicians? What about business leaders? And trying to, you know, take an overall view of the landscape, who is truly influential, um, and you know that's why we decided to conduct this research and then I guess we're in the business of helping individuals to get their message across Uh, and so what better way to do that and learn from some of the people who are the best at doing it two of which are set around the table. I was going to say you had to say that didn't you? Um, And you know we really wanted to put a spotlight on these individuals because you know clearly they work incredibly hard to get their message across for different causes Um, and you know it's something that we respect and as I say wanted to put draw attention to. Ellen, I know this report's taken over uh, much of your life for the past um, few months. C- can you tell us or, or talk us through why you guys believe it's so different from other lists that have been published out there? Because there are quite a few. <laughs> there are. Well, we wanted to look at influence in the round. So a lot of tech influencer lists are shortlists, either subject-specific or specific stakeholder groups, such as sole business leaders or only looking at fintech, for example. So we wanted to look at the different tech sectors so that we can see which ones are dominating, which ones are trailing, and also who is most prominent within those sectors. And uh, I guess it's about it's about time we, we revealed who is in your top 10, at least. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, just to make it exciting, we'll start at the, at the bottom. So, and, and I, I would say before we go into the top 10 list, when we, when, we, when we started on this project, we had the idea of coming up with a top 100 influencer list. And then the more we dug into it, we sort of thought, actually, maybe it should be 150. And then we ended up with a, a, a list of 500 people. And I think that's just to, you know, reflects the fact that there are a, a number of very impressive individuals out there. And we really wanted to highlight that. Um, but coming to the, coming to the top 10, uh, at 10, we have uh, Goncalo de Vasconcelos. Um, who is the founder and CEO of Syndicate Room. At nine, we have Alex Hudson, who is the deputy editor of, at, the, at Metro. I, f- I feel like um, Anthony, our, our engineer here, should be running some uh, sort of like music <laughs> in the background as you yeah. do this countdown. But, Absolutely. Uh, sorry, go on, Karen. Um, at eight, we have Rajesh Agrawal, uh, the deputy mayor of London for business. Then we have Dr. Sue Black uh, at seven. Then at six, Anne Bowden, who is the CEO of Starling Bank, who we'll hear from later. Then at five, we have Russ Shaw, who's the founder of Tech London Advocates. At four, we have Jeremy Waits, who is obviously with here with us here and then at three we have Stephen Bartlett who's the CEO of the social chain at two we have Mike Butcher editor-at-large at at TechCrunch and then at number one we have Stephen Kelly who's the CEO of Sage Group. Brilliant okay well as as we said at the top of the show two of those top ten are here in the studio with us um, so probably time to bring them uh, into the conversation and just picking up on on in terms of the lists and and what I was saying about you know that there are other lists out there and how different you know each one might be I'm assuming you've, you've been on these kind of lists before and we've seen technologies you know, try and measure influence through, through online algorithms. Apart from to boost the ego, how does it feel being included on, on a list like this and, and how much can we really read into them? Uh, Jeremy, let's come to you first. 
It's fantastic to be on these lists, right? But I'll tell you the first reaction that I had when you guys got in touch. Oh, my goodness. Really? Another list with another ranking and another influencer thing with some sketchy methodology behind it. And I've been on some of these lists, higher and lower, for a long period of time. And I've been on the end of some pretty feisty debates in and out of pubs about the value of these reports as well. In fact, I'll never forget a few years ago, there was... um, a company called Syncaps. I don't know if any of you guys remember Syncaps in the early days of Facebook. They used to do these things around the value of a like and the influence on Facebook. And it was, if you like someone on Facebook, you're worth this. And if you clicked on this like, it's worth whatever, $134. And the methodology was so flawed, but yet everyone got so hyped and caught up in this idea. And within a year of that report, the company went bankrupt. And this was a big consulting sort of social broadcast company. So when I looked at this, it was like, it's fantastic. And of course, I'm going to slag it off. (laughs) But then, of course, it's going to be the first thing that goes on my LinkedIn profile as well. (laughs) So the thing that's most credible, and I'd love to hear more about the methodology. I've got a view as well about why I think this is credible. Because you guys have gone beyond what is the normal list. And the reason most of those lists fail is pretty simple. I was, two years ago, the number one influencer on Twitter for big data. And I'm not at all influential at all. But I talked a lot about it. So you multiplied my followers by the amount of times I said hashtag big data. All those mentions across the year, someone's added them up and all of a sudden I'm the top influencer, which we all know is completely pointless. So I don't know if you could dip into some of the methodology because the thing that I liked the most, I don't know if you're going to mention it, the Edelman credibility. I've looked at that report for a really long time. I think it's 27 years old, 33,000 people. Levels of trust are at an all-time low. So to actually look at what influence really means is super important. Excellent. Well, Ellen, before you answer that, um, Sue, let's bring you in. What, what was your thoughts in terms of you know, being on, on another list of, of influ- you know, in terms of influence? Um, excitement, really. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's always nice, isn't it, to, to know that you're in the top 10. And uh, when you said you were going to start at the bottom, I kind of thought you were going to start from 500. <laughs> you know, maybe we'd find out yeah. that we were 500 and 499. <laughs> so it's quite nice to know that we're number seven and number four. Um, so that's cool. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I haven't been in on so many lists. I've been in lots of top women in tech lists, I think, and kind of done very well in those over the years. And and maybe a few years ago, social media kind of lists when there weren't so many people using Twitter. You know, I kind of came in the rankings for, for Twitter use uh, and stuff. Um, but in terms of general tech and men and women, kind of everybody, I don't think I've been... I can't think of any other lists off the top of my head sure. that, where I've come... Hi. So okay. this is sort of the first exciting one for me in this area, I think. Excellent. Well, well I want to come um, back to how you've, how you've appeared on this list in terms of yeah. your, your journey through uh, technology. But um, Ellen, do you want to just quickly sort of like give us this update in terms of how the, how the methodology works? Yeah, so what we wanted to do was to create as much as possible an objective ranking. So many influencer lists that are out there are created by single metrics. So it might just be social media reach, for example, or they're compiled by nomination from peers and then judged by panels, which really shortens the reach of the people who can be included. So we wanted to see what happened if we cast a really wide net across a range of technology subsectors and influencer groups and then applied different lenses to it. You know, from a research perspective, we also wanted to create a really robust methodology that we could repeat annually and track so that we can see how people move, how sectors move and how influence changes. So to do this, we partnered with the research company Delineate, the founder of which, James Turner, used to work on Edelman's Trust Barometer. So we had a lot of faith that he was the right person to go to with this particular research project. And it's taken a while. You know, we've worked together to develop a methodology that we felt really confident in. Um, that identifies and tracks tech influencers, and I think it's across 20 subsectors and nine different influencer groups in the UK. And then, you know, we had to kind of regroup and have a really big conversation about what do we think influence is, what really makes somebody influential. So then we looked at different lenses that we could apply to the universe of people that we'd collated. And this included social media influence, um, press coverage, industry event, keynote participation, as well as um, owned media. So if somebody's got a really influential blog or is doing um, work as Jeremy does through IBM and uses IBM as a platform. So using these four filters, putting it over the big universe of people that we found, you know, we felt, well, that's really robust, actually, because it's not just one area that somebody's excelling in. They have to have done all four. 
and they have to have done it quite frequently. So I think for press coverage, they had to appear six times in the press in the last 12 months and not from a press release. So, you know, we felt that that was quite a robust way yeah. of trying to work out who really is influencing tech at the moment in the UK. OK, well, well so as I said, I, I want to talk through your story in terms of um, how you've you know, become uh, to, to to appear on on a list of of influential people. Um, you know, I was I was reading um, an interview you did. You know, so obviously doing a bit of research for this podcast. I was uh, reading an interview you did um, with Jane Bird of the FT. Um, so obviously, you know, a very inspiring story. You talked about the fact that you left school at sixteen, then went back to education ten years later as a single mum uh, with three kids living on a council estate and benefits, and then fast forward today, you're now a government advisor on digital services. Last week, so I saw you tweeting about this you're at number 10 meeting the prime minister to talk about your tech mums uh, courses um which i want to hear more of so i'm going to ask you a question on on that um yeah. shortly and then along the way you've picked up the small honor of being an ob you know of getting an obe from the queen so i'm tempted to ask where it all went wrong yeah. but can you try and summarize how you've achieved that that whole journey we haven't got all night so okay. <laughs> no but i'm, I'm genuinely it's, it's it's an inspiring story it'll be great if you can just yeah talk us through that i, I mean i guess so I, I start with I wanted to get out of the situation we were in. And so I just tried to work out what's the best way to, to make things better for me and my family, to provide a better life for my kids. And if, if at that time, you know, kind of as a 26-year-old single mum living on a council estate in Brixton, if I tried to go back into the workplace, I'd left school at 16 with 5.0 level, so I wouldn't have been able to earn enough even to pay for childcare, basically. So I knew that wasn't an option going straight back into work. Uh, I'd left school at 16 but hadn't really wanted to leave school it had been my circumstances that meant that I had to leave school really so I'd always wanted to go into education uh, to go, I wanted to go to university but couldn't when I was younger so I guess kind of several things together led me to think well why don't I you know try and do some A levels was my first thought hopefully go to university then I'll be able to earn more money to support my children um, so, so I did. I went to and, and did a maths course at Southwark College. Then got onto a degree course in computing at Southbank Uni. Uh, then was encouraged to apply for a PhD position, which I did, even though I didn't know what a, a PhD was. <laughs> um, and then, so that, and then did a PhD in software engineering. And during that time, became a full-time academic. And then finally had, you know, had a salary, had a proper salary. Um, and then I guess I realised I'm an ambitious person. I, I feel like you only get one life, make the most of it. Yeah. I think I just got gradually more and more confident as I was going along and that kind of carries on. So then um, applied for promotion every time I could, ended up a few years after that being head of department at University of Westminster. Um, and at the same time, setting up the UK's first online network for women in tech, BCS Women, and running the campaign to save Bletchley Park. Um, well, tell, and, tell us about that, because that yeah. obviously had a, had a big impact in terms of, you know, your influence and, and getting your name out in, in the industry, shall we? Yeah, I guess so. Well, I mean, so, you know, when I started the campaign, I was head of department, University of Westminster, uh, um, in computing, and... D doing various stuff around women and technology, I found out that 8,000 women worked at Bletchley Park and the outstation. So I found that story amazing and I couldn't find anything online at all about that. So I ran a campaign to record the oral history of some of the women that worked there. And then at the launch of that, found out that Bletchley Park was having financial difficulties uh, and uh, found out that the work that was done there shortened the war by two years. 11 million people a year were dying. And I just thought, this place can't close. It's over 22 million lives. 10,000 people worked here. I just thought I've got to do something about it. And so then kind of took it from there, really. I think I saw a problem. I, I got angry, really. I think I was upset to start with and then angry. I just thought this place can't close. I've got to change this situation. So started a campaign contacted all the heads and professors of computing in the country, got them on boards, wrote letters to the Times, got the BBC involved, got on BBC News. But actually, it was then six months after that, really starting to use Twitter at the end of 2008, when I realised, oh, well, actually, just by typing Bletchley Park into the search box in Twitter, I can find everyone in the world that's talking about Bletchley Park already. So there's loads of people that will care about Bletchley Park. And kind of gradually got people like Stephen Fry involved through Twitter, and gradually built up a community of people through Twitter that, that cared about Bletchley Park. So then we kind of had like um, a, like a flash mob of people on Twitter that were that were also spies. So they were kind of looking out for Bletchley Park stuff, people visiting Bletchley Park, going near Bletchley Park. So, for example, uh, David Lammy one day 
uh, was in Milton Keynes. So someone tweeted me saying, David Lammy's in Milton Keynes, you know, like, so then we're all like tweeting David Lammy. Have you ever been to Bletchley Park, David Lammy? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to go there? Did you know? Blah, blah, blah. Shortened the war by two years. Um, so we kind of had this flash mob on Twitter uh, that would look for opportunities and then we would all tweet each other. And I guess that's it kind of all built up from yeah. there. Really. And I, I just fell in love with Twitter, really. And I, I still do. I'm still addicted 10 years later. <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. OK, um, well, I, w- I want to come on to um, what being influential means uh, to you. But before you answer that, so um, Jeremy, I'm going to probably come to you first on, on this one. But you've got a couple of minutes to think about it because I asked the same question to Anne Bowden, but uh, not before I asked her about her journey through technology um, as, as well that led her to f- um, becoming the founder and CEO of Starling Bank. Well, technology has always been part of my life. Um, I was a computer science and chemistry grad and that joined the banking industry in the 80s. And I spent the first sort of 15, 20 years of my career in pure technology roles, in in big technology roles in some of the biggest corporations in the world. And then I went into more front office roles in big banks. And now I'm back um, running a technology company Um, It's a bank, but we are just as much a technology company. That's interesting that you position it um, like that as a technology company. But why why did you think that the world needed a a new bank then as well as as as, (laughs) Um, the technology side? Well, the financial crisis really, really injured um, the banks around the world and the people they served. And post-crisis, I spent a lot of time talking uh, to consumers, to people who worried about the day-to-day money. And I realized that the banks, whilst trying to solve the financial crisis, had missed out on a big technology revolution. And people had changed the way they did their shopping with Amazon. They changed the way they bought music. But that technology had not been brought to banking. And I had to do it. I had to start a bank that brought all that new technology and, well, really expertise in customer experience and um, really reacting to what customers really want to the first time to the banking industry. Right. Okay. I want to come on to the the topic of influence because obviously it's what the, the the podcast is you know is all about, and the fact that you've been listed on this um, Taito Tech uh, five hundred power list as one of the top ten uh, technology influences in the UK. My question is, is I guess, what does influential mean to you? And the, and the reason I ask that is that, you know, you now clearly have a, an opportunity to inspire others. So do you think that that brings with it a certain responsibility? So in, in, in respect of, do you have to like think carefully before commenting on anything through social media or maybe when you're presenting at, at various different conferences? Um, as an influencer, both in the traditional banking industry and in new fintech, um, there are a lot of places to talk about what's happening in the industry. And it is a responsibility. It's a responsibility to make sure that both sides of the argument are heard. And when I was in a traditional role in a big bank, uh, sometimes it, I was very reluctant and my PR department was very reluctant for me to come out with outspoken opinion. Um, being an entrepreneur, being a CEO of a new bank, I now have a great freedom to say what I really believe about what's happening in technology, finance and entrepreneurship. Jeremy, you um, heard there what Anne was saying. How's it, you know, in terms of your thoughts and responsibility, do you think before you tweet or, or what you're presenting? I mean, obviously you're representing a, a big business at IBM at the same time. But uh, what's your thoughts on that question? I do. Let me take a step back. Because I think you hit on something really good there. And there's a beautiful part of the the two stories that we've just heard about what influence means and why. You know, you say, like, none of us, and I'm sure any true influencer, never set out wanting to be an influencer. You set out wanting to change things with no agenda and no bias. And I think the reasons that a lot of rankings get a bad press is because it's so easy to game a system. And it's so easy to engineer them. We could maybe get into a debate around that later about how easy it is to engineer that. And who are you actually influencing? That's a bigger question. To be on an influencer list for tech is great, but who within tech? Tech's a massive industry. Who exactly am I trying to you know, inspire and who we're trying to change? So as that clip was playing, I was thinking about who's actually influenced me the most. Now, on the way over in the cab uh, this afternoon, I Googled what influence meant. I just thought, it's a stupid thing, right? I mean, of course we know what influence is. I Googled the definition just to see what's the official... 
influences the capacity to have an effect on someone that makes them do something which they otherwise would not have done. Now, I always had a problem with that because influence is making someone do something that they wouldn't have done. That's not good language, is it? We don't want to make people and force them to do anything, and yet that's the marketing industry as a whole is driven on that idea of influence. So when I think about who's influenced me, I think back to Simon Sinek that doesn't have a massive amount of followers. He's got a successful blog. I love Seth Godin and people like that. But Simon Sinek did his super famous talk back in 2011. You remember the golden circle, start yeah. with why. People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. The key part of that talk for me wasn't the whole thing about finding your why. You know, like, why have you changed the world? Mm. Why are you trying to influence women in tech? Why are we trying to save Bletchley and do all these wonderful things, right? What Simon said in his talk was the goal in business isn't to sell to people who need what you have. It's to work with people who believe what you believe. So when it gets down to true influence for me, it's like, how do we find out who those people are that believe the same things? Because once we know who they are, and it's usually a very, very small circle, it's not a lot of people could get into a conversation about numbers, I guess, in a second. It's a very small audience, whether it's Dunbar's number of 140 or the 2,000 that you max out and beyond that, it's pointless. Who are those people that I'm trying to influence and why? What's my agenda? So however you got the influence almost becomes irrelevant because it's like, well, now you've got it, great. What are you going to do with it? Mm. So what's your thoughts? <laughs> I, re I really want to influence as many people as possible. Um, I guess kind of becoming more confident and uh, becoming the person I am today, whoever that is. Um, I've kind of almost forced myself to change, to make, in a way, my life easier because it's easier to live in the world if you're confident than if you're not confident. And I was extremely underconfident as a kid and as a teenager, even in my 20s. So, I, you know, I really kind of feel like I have a mission to to really help people and particularly women and particularly disadvantaged women to just feel more confident in their lives and I think that technology is a great enabler in that area so kind of touching on the tech mum stuff what I'm really trying to achieve with that is to help women that maybe haven't had the best start in life the best chances in life to feel more confident in themselves and to use technology to empower them to have happier and more successful lives. Brendan, you had a... Well, I was, I was just going to say, I think one of the interesting things listening to Sue, Jeremy and, and Anne is just that clearly three very passionate individuals, you know, be, 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 believe very strongly in what they're doing and have like a clear sense of purpose. And I think it sort of lines up with what you were saying, Jeremy, about Simon Sinek. I think some people really struggle to find that. And, and I think that one of the reasons why these individuals are on the top 500 is because they do have this very strong sense of purpose about what they're trying to do. Um, and that's what I've always found exciting about communications is this ability to have an impact on the world and to extend you know, your reach to a much wider audience. But at the heart of it, um, it's not about what technology you're using to do it, that helps, but actually it's about having a really strong belief you know, that, that, that you want to get behind and communicate to people. And one of the things that I've struggled with the most with this whole topic as well, since we're talking about the C-Suite podcast, um, I love the idea of thinking that any influence that you have, that you could be sat in a room with some really smart people in charge of some huge budgets. And if, as a marketer, I do my job well, I've helped people make money and save money. And the conversation we may get into later is, well, what do we do with the money that we've saved? And maybe that starts a bigger conversation about trying to give more hours of coding to teenage girls to teach them to code. Worked on a project for that a couple of years ago. Marketers always stop at the bit about make money, save money, win awards. They don't continue it through with how do I use that influence to make a real meaningful change? Do you know what I mean? So when I think about the C-suite, I think, well, of course, we've got this influence to go and inspire all the CXOs. Do you know what? When you actually think about it, we're not going to influence CMOs at all, you know, and CXOs. And the vast majority of us are not going to do that because that's three, four, five levels above us. Mm. What we can do is influence the people around us to improve workspaces, to help people work with people who believe what they believe, find their purpose. And as cheesy, I can't even believe I'm about to say this, <laughs> as, as bad as that is, it almost feels like to be truly influential and change other people you've got to somehow figure out how to change yourself first to make sure you've got the right agenda and the right motivations. 
Okay, Ellen, let, let's come back to the, to how the report is broken down because I'm I'm interested to see in in terms of you know the, the roles that people have, um, gender, the sector that they're in. Can you share any any of that at all? So the majority of tech influencers are business leaders. I think it's sixty percent, and they are leading the overall tech conversation. Um, looking at the whole 500, 25% of the tech influencers are journalists. Now, the interesting thing about that is in the more established tech sectors like fintech, the journalists maybe don't feature as much. But in the more up-and-coming tech areas like clean tech and so on, journalists become more influential. So there's, you know, they have a very specific role to play in bringing out new topics and getting people excited and engaged in new forms of technology. We wanted to look at the government influence on technology in the UK. And in the list of 500, we only have 13 government representatives, which, you know, I think is quite small, really. There's a couple of MPs who are doing things on artificial intelligence, which is fantastic. Um, The Deputy Mayor of London, as we heard before, he's in our top 10 and is doing a really good job, actually, at looking at opportunities for businesses in London in technology. So, yeah, it was an interesting analysis for us to go through and say, right, OK, so looking back to traditional forms of influence, where you'd say it'd be politicians, parliamentarians and so on, where do they net out today? But really, it's business leaders still who are really driving the conversation forward. I'll, I'll come on to the government um, one in a second, because I want to ask Sue about that, given you, uh, you're advising the government. But what about you? Because I asked Anne, um, I've got a clip that I want to play in a second, that I, I asked Anne about her thoughts in terms of women in, in technology. Have you got a split on the gender? Yeah. So in the Power 500, under a quarter, so 24% of tech influencers are female. Um, it's similar when we look at the top 50, that's 26%. And in the top 25, it's just one in five. Okay. All right. Well, let's... Um, okay. So I, let's, let's uh, hear from Anne on, on that exact topic. I started in technology and finance 30 years ago, and things haven't got much better. There are very few women then and few women today. Is it a combination of finance and tech and entrepreneurship coming together? Um, probably is, but we can do an awful lot better. Organisations must try really, really hard to get more women at senior positions. Uh, Jeremy, you, you spend a lot of time in, in the US as well as the UK. Do you see any differences there in, in terms of you know this gender issue, or would you say it's an industry-wide um, issue? Um, I do see a small difference, but I think there's two things at play. First of all, can I just comment? I mean incredibly proud to work for the company that I do, that all of my bosses are all women, (laughs) right the way through to the top, even our chairwoman, president, CEO, right, all women. IBM is almost a company run by women. I I love that. When I think about the events that I do on either side, I think there's two things at play. First of all, you've got something about market maturity with the UK, Western Europe and the US. And I often say that the maturity of trends is probably about 18 months apart, that the UK and Western Europe is arguably 18 months behind what's going on in Silicon Valley and in the West. Whether or not that's true or not depends on industries, but across the board, that's kind of when I look at the challenges people are trying to solve. But when I go to events, it's very much about the gender bias. It's not about the lack of maturity. You know, if you listen to, I mean, in fact, go and Google Ginny Rometty, our CEO, anything that she says about women, she's like, I don't want to be the best woman CEO in the world. I want to be the best CEO in the world. It's got nothing to do with being a woman. Now, I was at an event, couple of weeks ago there was a CIO forum and a CMO forum and it was really interesting because it was like this is the almost embodied the industry you know and this was a a big venue very big posh venue in London a couple of hundred people in each room the CIO room had 95% male counted them 95% male the CMO room which had a lot of people that come out of brand and PR was still heavily male but it was probably 65% male but still massively skewed towards male And in an extreme example, I looked at a VC event that was in Silicon Valley. And of the 200 people in a room, there was five women. Now, we can argue a lot about diversity and how things need to change, and they should change. That's representative of the way that the industry is at the moment, whether we like it or not. So with the influence, Sue, right, and women, like, how do we change that? I've got two twins, two girls. I'd love them to go into tech. How do I inspire them that they would want to do that in a world that is dominated by a lot of guys? 
So you're nodding along there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's a kind of knotty problem, I think, really. And uh, it's been interesting for me being in the area for the, over 20 years now and, and kind of looking at the stats as I did 20 years ago, setting up the BCS Women Group. It was about 20% women in tech then and it's about 20% women in tech now. So you could say, so nothing's changed. Yeah, well, that's what Anne was, was making but the point on, yeah. I would say everything's changed, really. I mean, so apart from the stats, and I think we're going to see a, a, an upsurge really now. So 20 years ago when I set up BCS Women, I used to get comments like, why are you ghettoising yourself? That was just for setting up a group for, for women. You know, that it was kind of seen as like a very negative and kind of anti-male thing to do, whereas, of course, it's neither of those things I didn't think at all and uh, but that's I think opinions are changing the general opinion wouldn't be that 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 wouldn't be the general opinion now um, and you know I just look around and there's so many groups for women everywhere and there are lists of women in tech there weren't you know none of that existed 20 years ago at all and it was even hard to just get the stats of how many women were in tech. So I think things have changed dramatically. We just haven't seen the, the numbers change, the statistics change. Um, but I think that's, that is going to change soon. But I also think that, you know, kind of technology, the Internet, social media is creating a social revolution as well as a kind of technological revolution. And... You know, just the fact that we can now all connect with each other. Um, so, you know, so women in tech can connect with each other, even around hashtag women in tech. You know, such a very, very simple thing. I can find women in tech across the world, which I just couldn't have done that. Um, and all sorts of um, kind of diversity issues. People are, out, are able to connect with people that they want to talk to all around the world that feel the same way that they do about any sorts of issues. And again, that couldn't happen previously. And I think so we're starting to see an impact with actually the whole Me Too um, stuff that, that's uh, happened recently. Um, and that, that's going to continue. And we now see women who are kind of standing out and saying, well, this this bad thing happened to me. Also, previous to the last five years or so, they probably would have been vilified and their story wouldn't have got out there. Whereas now they can connect to other women or other people who've, who've had similar um, things happen to them. And then we all start seeing that actually it's a pattern of behaviour. It's not isolated incidents, which is kind of how that sort of thing was treated previously. And now those people can connect with each other and then everyone sees that happening and so that creates a difference in the way people think about issues and so now people are starting to think yeah you know women in tech that's something we need to do something about and so we're kind of we're on the way to yeah. where, where we want to get to we're not there yet but I really see massive change happening and what, and what oh sorry Jeremy you were no, I just want to make a, a point on that because I think that uh, data lies right um it's really hard often to see the context behind data and what story it really tells. And we've seen that in, in, in Brexit, we've seen that in Trump, we've seen when there's an obscene amount of data to judge the decision and the confidence and the, you know, the, the prediction which you think is going to happen and we've seen that we were completely wrong, even with all of that data. And to start looking at things like social where you can have influence and when you can try and change the tide on some of these issues is super important. But the reason that some of these rankings, and this is going to continue to be bad for a number of years, because what's going to happen is you're going to be measuring these mentions, whether it's across social media or blogs and forums and press and PR and things. And I'll tell you why most of those rankings are going to be wrong in the future, because people's behavior is changing dramatically. It used to be the case up until maybe two years ago, people talked and complained and moaned on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and blogs and forums and public networks. And you could go and see that. And that's why brands invested so much in social command centers, which we're all familiar with, right? That doesn't work anymore. Why? Because all of consumer behavior shift into private messaging apps now. And in some cases, we've done a lot of research. I'm just about to launch a report on this. In some cases, 80 to 90% of all conversations are now private. Facebook Messenger, Snapchat, WhatsApp, WeChat, Line, whatever right we can't see that and the more emotional a topic is the higher the likelihood of it being in a private messaging app the higher degree of women you're going to have in those environments and the rankings aren't going to be able to see that because they can't hack into people's phones and see that data because it's not public anymore i think that's going to be a challenge for all of us going forward having truly representative research 
when most of it's now hidden, those conversations. That's interesting. Did you, Brendan, do you want to come back? I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think um, I agree with Sue that, that I think we're at the point where things are going to change very quickly. I think people are realising that this doesn't make sense on so many different levels. You know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, it's not a way to run businesses with so many, so much inequality in the uh, gender. Um, and it doesn't make sense in a in list like this. And um, so, yeah, no, I, I agree with you that I think um, things are primed to change. And and it, these lists like these are a source of embarrassment for people, quite rightly. You know, like this shouldn't be how things are. And then I think on the flip side, I think women are quite rightly, you know, coming forward and saying that they want to, you know, take more opportunities. And, and so I think the combination of those two things together means that I think this picture will change dramatically over the next five years. OK. Uh, I also want to pick up on the on the lack of government representation, as I said earlier. So, um, so I want to c- come back to you on this one as well, because um, isn't it better that we are bringing in industry experts like yourself to help them rather than, you know, hoping that government representatives are going to be the influential people? What, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, it's hard to know. I'm not an employee of government, so so I can't really speak uh, in that capacity. But I think that, you know, like all big organisations, so like the government, the NHS, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And so it's quite hard to make change happen across massive organisations. And, like, you know, I've heard people before kind of compare it to, you know, like steering a dinghy or steering uh, an oil tanker. And, you know, it takes a mile against I don't know 10 meters to kind of change and you know I think it's that kind of when you've got so many people working for one organization you you can't just kind of click your fingers and, and change direction so I think what's great with uh, what the government has been doing is you know setting up the government digital service which it has been kind of gradually having a really good effect across government here and you know in, in my capacity as advisor on the board you know I now know that they they get people coming from all over the world governments from all over the world come to see what we're doing here so you know in some ways we're kind of way ahead in terms of thinking digital but at the same time it's still a massive organization and you can't just change it overnight yeah and, and as I mentioned earlier you you um, had the opportunity to go into number 10 and chat to the PM about tech moms can you share anything about <laughs> what you discussed yeah well I still can't actually believe that happened so I'm glad that you're reaffirming that it did actually happen it wasn't a dream that I had uh, but well, yeah I saw you managed to take the selfie outside the uh, outside <laughs> yeah. the door always get a selfie yeah. <laughs> I couldn't get one with the PM because <laughs> um, we weren't allowed to take our phones in no one's allowed to take a phone but um yeah, so that I mean, that's a, a crazy experience considering my background and everything uh, and stuff that's happened to me in my life. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. So we were invited as a roundtable to to say what we thought about the um, about technology being able to influence or help the UK economy or the UK in general. Um, and so, you know, because I'm a big kind of uh, proponent of technology skills, digital skills, and, and upskilling everybody. Um, that's what I was talking about. So I was saying, you know, technology and education have dramatically changed my life, my life chances, everyone around me, the lives of my kids. And, you know, I think that practically all of us weren't taught tech at school, really. So, you know, like the whole population. So there's a whole population out there that we could teach digital skills to. You know, I run the Tech Mums programme, which basically in 10 hours takes someone who could be a bit negative about technology and think, I don't like technology, but let's have a go kind of thing through to realising that it's got massive potential to change their lives in so many different ways to help them set up their own business, to um, get into the workplace, to get back into education. You know, we teach stuff like uh, app design, which most people don't realise that they could design their own apps, you know, but but you can. You don't need like a massive set of specialist skills or do a long course to, to be able to design apps. There's loads of things out there that, that we can do to change our lives. And it's I feel like it's almost like you just need to give someone the key to kind of unlock their own potential. That's how I feel it is with digital skills. And so I was trying to put the case that we need to get out to everybody in the UK, really, and and teach them digital skills. So I was asking the PM to, to help me do that. And then I realised that I was sitting at a table with all these influencers. So I said, well, and actually anybody here, you know, <laughs> Can you help me make this happen, basically? But it's just a massive opportunity that the UK's got now to, to upskill itself um, using technology to, to give everyone that kind of 
um, empowerment, I guess, through learning some basic digital skills, which could change their lives, but also change the, the kind of chances of the UK in economic terms, as we're now operating in a global marketplace. So Absolutely, I think at all yeah. sorts of levels, it can make a massive difference. So I was just trying to encourage everyone to help me make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, Ellen, just coming back to the report, any other specific trends that you picked up on from doing the research? Well, Brenda, do you want to cover off some? Yeah, sure. I think we've got um, so. I think one of the things we picked up on was uh, earlier was about the fact that 25% of the top 500 are journalists. And if you drill into that, 56% of those journalists are, are generalists covering a range of technology topics. Um, of, the, of the 20 subsectors we identified, um, only six of them had five or more journalists in, in the top 500, whereas nine subsectors had one or no journalists. So I think what, what that demonstrates is there's this sort of big cluster of, of generalist journalists covering technology. But then when you start getting down into very specific areas of technology, it's, it's very shallow, um, which is interesting because I think that a lot of sectors, you know, do depend upon the media to help, you know, build their profile and help to, you know, educate people about possibilities. So, so I think that's potentially an opportunity for businesses because there aren't aren't journalists in there. They they need to sort of broaden the message themselves. Um, but I think it, it's also just you know it's a potential uh, issue in that there isn't enough specialist media out there that's going deep enough into some of the technology topics. Jeremy, did you have any uh, thoughts on that? As you were both speaking, there was a quote, and I'm probably going to butcher this quote to death. Um, there was a quote I was thinking, especially as Sue was just talking, from, I think it's Margaret Mead. And it's quite a famous quote, so I'm probably going to kill it. But it was something like, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world, because in fact it's the only thing that ever has. Right? The first time I heard that was reading a piece of research at Harvard a long time ago, and I've tried to find the research since. If anyone can help me with it, it would be great. But I genuinely read it and scribbled it down. And what it showed was that 5% of any given group can affect change within the other 95%. And I think it's certainly fair to say, see, that you've influenced a ton of people. Mm. It's probably incredibly difficult for you to know how many that is. So, well, and you, you know, you're talking about putting a number on measuring influence. It's incredibly hard, and it's something the industry struggled with for a really, really long time. But having rankings that raise awareness is one thing, but then doing what we're actually doing today, for me, is far more important, which is talking about the true value of influence, of trying to just inspire people like why do you get out of bed to try and do something that hopefully is going to change something in some way for the better and whether you're 500 on a list or one or four or six or whatever is completely irrelevant because however you got on that list that at some point is going to put you on a podcast or in a boardroom or at a conference or in front of a book publisher and they're going to say so what have you got to say and if you're full of shit, nothing else matters and people are going to find out really quickly. But if you've got something really good to say and you've got that platform, awesome. I was just wondering, actually, in terms of, you know, you're saying Sue's influenced people. Um, how, and I don't know if this is a job for, for your business in terms of how you see the line of how that influence works. So just for example, I, I've been to Bletchley Park now couple of years ago I would never have considered that obviously I mean it was mainly off the back of seeing the film but I'm guessing it was through your work that saved Bletchley Park that then created the story for them to then want to do the film that then caused me to go and visit yeah. it yeah absolutely. so um, but so is that your influence through you know a number of connections that that's happened I, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here sure. but I'm just wondering yeah, no, it's it really interesting for me to see that kind of happen in front of me over several years really yeah. so you know I wasn't you know, I wasn't um, particularly involved with Bletchley Park. It was like randomly I got invited up to a meeting there, found out about the women that worked there, then found out later on that it was potentially going to close. And then I guess I just thought I've got to do something about it. So at that point, my network was like the heads and professors of computing in the UK because I was one of them. So that was like my sort of peer group, I suppose. So I went out to them first and then saw that they were excited about it. And then I kind of just gradually feel like I kind of expanded that to a bigger and bigger and bigger group of people. And half the time I had no clue what I was doing at all. You know, like an academic computer scientist, I didn't know anything about marketing, PR, I just had no clue. So it was, I think because I, I was kind of like desperate to solve this problem. So I was looking around all the time, kind of, kind of scanning the horizon of everything around me, talking to people. 
in person, looking at stuff online, just trying to work how, work out how on earth am I going to make this happen? And so it was, first of all, my first call was my peer group, then trying to get on TV because that's kind of what I knew about. So then I was on BBC News, so that had a bit of an impact. Uh, and then it was Twitter that really made, I think, a massive difference. And then getting, you know, key influencers involved, which, you know, that if I then go and read about how to run a campaign, that's probably how to do it. But it like I didn't go and read up about it. I just was looking at whatever was around me and then thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that again because that worked. You know, like I found a key influential person. Who else is uh, an influential person in this area? Um, so we're kind of like almost stumbling along, trying to work out what to do and kind of finding things as I went along. And and so it's been interesting. So we ran the campaign for three years. I thought it would take six months. I just thought, we'll tell the story, we'll get on the news. Everyone will say, yeah, let's save it and it'll be saved kind of thing, which of course didn't happen. Uh, and then by the time that I'd been campaigning, so basically, basically spending you know, all my spare time, really, my poor family, uh, campaigning outside of uh, work hours um, by three years when it was actually when Bletchley Park said, oh, you know, you don't need to say that anymore. We, you know, Bletchley Park is saved. By the time I've been doing it for three years, I just thought I was going to spend the rest of my life doing it <laughs> and that it would never end. But, you know, hopefully it was getting a bit better and a bit better. So after three years, I was amazed that then, you know, it kind of like hit me like, a, you know, like a truck, really. Oh, my goodness. So it is, you know, so it is saved. Oh, my goodness. And then after that, I mean, so throughout that campaigning time, I was talking to everybody around me. I did went to lots of kind of like tech networking events, was talking to everybody, speaking at conferences about Bletchley Park trying to find producers at the BBC, people writing scripts for the BBC, people, anyone interested who would write anything of any kind of series, documentary, anything to do with Bletchley Park. So I was pitching all of them, you know, you've got to do this or, you know, you must help, blah, 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 and doing that for several years. And, of course, then so that, you know, it, it wasn't me that spoke to the people that wrote the film script but you know gradually that just kind of built awareness yeah. built recognition built the sort of feel good we must say Bletchley Park which just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and then that just influenced more and more people and we got so then around the time it was saved so then the Queen came to visit then the Duchess of Cambridge came to visit so then we'd gone from people saying oh well it's going to close to the most famous woman in the world potentially visiting Bletchley Park yeah. in, I think it was about five years. And then after six or seven, seven or eight years, then the imitation game and that, you know, that's a real game changer, yeah, having course. a Hollywood film. And so when I go around and talk, I say, how many people have been to Bletchley Park? You know, and it's a certain amount. How many people have seen the imitation game? It's a lot more people. So, so that's amazing, you know, yeah. that it's got the message out there to a global audience. Jeremy, can you answer that question about in terms of the way that so that story and how the, the messages work through the like the network of the connections i think there's um and this was always a big attraction wasn't it of social years ago i mean i was head of social at phones for you for my sins a <laughs> number of years ago and we grew incredibly fast and got a huge amount of influence you know and i started getting invited everywhere because we grew so fast but back in 2010 it was really easy to do that remember everyone was talking about clout um, I, I, where was the quote? I was looking at something around clout 2011. This quote is beautiful. A clout score of 75 or more will give you a, give your tweet a half life 70 times longer than others. Beautiful. <laughs> right? The influence of Twitter. I tweet the thing. Influence shoots through the roof. So the joy of social for brands years ago was I'm not speaking to one to one anymore. I'm speaking to your 140 active friends. And if I speak to their friends and share something good, that's 19,600. You share that again, it's 2.7 million people. So you've got a brand that now no longer needs to pay to reach all these people to get influence. Because if I do really cool content within four generations, in theory, I reach whatever, in a perfect world, over 2 million people. Now, obviously, it's not a perfect world. That's how things used to work. I don't think things work like that anymore. Um, I love Twitter, but... That's not how it works anymore. There's a lot of journalists on Twitter for a reason. I think a lot of it's an echo chamber. I'm a big fan of Twitter. I have a lot of followers. I've got a very, very small amount of useful followers. There's probably a lot of fake bots and porn stars in the middle of all of those, um, as there is a lot of fake traffic on the internet and stuff, you know. So when you start looking at what that influence really means and kind of the value of all of that, I think it's just, which is the audience that you genuinely want to speak to? And it's not going to be 10, 20, 50,000. Mm. It's probably going to be two or three really, you know, two or 3,000 of a really, really engaged audience. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So my point on the Twitter thing is 
and I think this is the problem with the way that social has changed everything, not necessarily for the better. In the past, people might have gone to Bletchley and campaigned with placards. There may have been marches, there may have been walks, they may have run and raised money and sponsorship and done. And sometimes now, kids, and obviously I'm not speaking for everyone, they may think that a share on Facebook or a tweet is validation. I'm now standing for a cause. As if you pressing retweet means anything, as opposed to writing a letter to your MP or going and physically visiting somewhere, which is how they used to. And that mindset, I don't think, is a good one. But I think, oh, can I just say, I think it's the combination of several things. So we've got social media now, which is an added way of doing things, but it doesn't mean we just chuck everything else away. Mm. You know, for me, it was a combination of meeting up with people in real life, uh, doing stuff on Twitter, doing stuff through the usual channels, trying to get in the papers still, and, and the combination of all of those things together. So I don't think, if you just think kind of what you're saying, if you know, social media is not the only way mm. to do anything. It's just an added way to do And I've seen some charities that are really struggling and their, their donations are going right down. And I've asked them, what is it that you're struggling with the most? Everybody loves you and the share of voice. All your influence is incredibly high. And some of the answers I've got back from chief execs in those charities have been, our likes are up, our retweets, our mentions, our share of voice, but yet people aren't donating mm. because they're doing one instead of the other yeah. instead of the Because it's easy just to... Like Sue says, you yeah. should do both. It's easy yeah. just to share it and you think you've done you've done your job, but you haven't, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Brendan, sorry. Yeah, you, you... I mean, I'm trying to be a bit coherent, but a few points, really. I think one of the things is just going back to this point about, I think the common denominator for success in this list is being really passionate about something and having a you know a cause that you really want to fight for because that's something that you know means that you will engage on social media you will engage with the media you will go out to events and speak it's that combination of the the different things and but you need to be so passionate that it's going to get you out of bed and get you off your smartphone and off your laptop and do a bunch of different things so i think that's one point i just wanted to go back a and and i agreed with what jeremy was saying earlier about the fact that it does doesn't take an army of people to to raise an issue as Sue, you know, as testament uh, to that. But what I wanted to just bring back to some of the some of the stats we've got here is that of the subsectors we looked at, um, uh, 79 of the individuals on the list are focused on fintech. 42 are focused on um, sort of uh, advertising and marketing technology. And they are by far and away the sort of runaway sectors in, in this 500. So as a nation, we sort of our tech industry seems to be very oriented around fintech and, and marketing and advertising te- technology. Whereas if you look at the bottom 10 groups, there are, there are 10 or less influencers focused on them. So I think just the, looking at the breadth of the technology industry in, in the UK, if we want to try and broaden what we're famous for, there is there is a, a, a need, I think, for, for more people to step up and to be passionate about their areas. Okay. Well, we're actually talking about in terms of like the UK, you're, um, the list is just UK influencers. You're obviously an international agency. Do you have plans for um, widening that list into other territories? You know, maybe create an, uh, an overall global list. Will these guys still be in the top ten? That's that's what they want to hear. <laughs> you know, big questions. Um, no, we definitely want to to roll this list out, the methodology into other markets that we operate in at the moment. Um, we wanted to really work hard on getting the methodology right you know i can't kind of stress enough that we didn't just want to make another list we wanted to make something that we thought was valuable useful and you know at taito we have a a bit of a mantra which is um contribute don't pollute so we only ever want to kind of add something to a discussion and not just create noise and so yes we will definitely be rolling this out into other markets we just wanted to get it right here first mm-hmm. and uh, when if, if you come to repeat this uh, let's say in 12 or 18 months time what, what do you think I'm, in fact I'm going to ask you all, all this what, what do you think that list is going to be looking like in terms of its makeup breakdown of, of people it's a really good question I can't see that it's going to have changed a huge amount in 12 months I'd love to say we'd see a lot more women or we'd see you know um, different parts of the tech world better represented but in 12 months i'm not so sure that we will i would like to say in like three years time yeah i have high hopes sue what's your thoughts on that how can we how can we make this breakdown change well yeah obviously i would love to see more women on the list so yeah hopefully 50 percent women in next year (laughs) i just think that the danger is that we we have these echo chambers and it's like how representative is this audience of the wider community and the wider world and 
You know, you go to Germany and hardly anybody tweets and blogs are super important. You go in the Nordics and you've still got traditional channels are incredibly important, even though highest level of smartphone adoption, social media penetration. It's really, really hard to see that. Because of this thing, and I'm banging on about the private networks, but it's a huge problem because that's where people want to talk. They want to go back to the one-to-one interactions, often in a private environment with their friends. If that is true and if that continues to grow at the rate that it is, what it looks like is happening is that Twitter is going to represent 5 to 7% of an audience. Facebook may be 15%, but most of that is private. So what may happen is that we may see a lot more journalists, we may see a lot more women, but the danger is, is that list still only going to be representative of 5% of the population and 95% fundamentally disagree with all of that? I think that's the bigger issue that we should be looking at. Okay. Um, Final question for uh, you guys. Um, So for Sue and Jeremy, given that you uh, have this opportunity now to use your influential status, uh, what's the key message that you want to get across out of this podcast? Um, that, that technology can be a massive uh, empower of people and countries and organisations, so at, at every level, I think. And technology skills, still most people only have some kind of uh, understanding of maybe of a subset of of all of the the skills that are available, all of the opportunities that are available. And I think, you know, we can really empower everyone from an individual level to change their lives by understanding some digital skills or getting on board with digital skills, but also organisations. You know, we're going to have to... The rate of change is speeding up throughout the whole world of of just everything that's happening. And so we need to be much more um, open to change happening in our lives. And, you know, the more we understand technology and what's happening in technology, the easier that is uh, to, to accomplish. And so I think, you know, it's that we're operating in a global marketplace. The UK's got a great opportunity to upskill the workforce for, for companies in the UK to be very successful economically in the global marketplace. But we need everyone to, to understand the technology, have those basic skills so that, that companies can adapt to change quickly and, and to go out there and take opportunities. Brilliant. Um, Jeremy, last one for you. I think it's the responsibility just to influence whatever audience you've got. I mean, that, I'd love that to be the message for anyone that listens to this. I don't care whether your audience is five people, whether it's your mum and your dog, or whether it's the 25 people at work, the 200 people that love your blog, the 500 on Facebook, or you know, however many thousand followers you might have on Twitter. However big or small that audience is, I think our jobs is to create more value than we capture. And I think that's a mindset thing. You know, We mentioned Sinek before, goal in business isn't to sell to people who need what you have, it's to work with people who believe what you believe. That quote changed my life because it made me realize if we've got any type of influence, then, and that influence is gonna make people do that they, things they wouldn't have done before. That shouldn't be to get people to buy more stuff. And Steve Bartlett, beautiful guy, he, he can help a lot of brands do that. We can build more profitable relationships, we can build more loyal ones, keep more people coming back. What we need to do with any influence is build more meaningful relationships. So let me leave you with my favorite quote. This is written at the front page of every one of my notebooks um, from Zig Ziglar, the great sales trainer of the 1960s, right? Um, He said, you can have everything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want. Very nice. Um, Brendan? I think we're, you know, we're we have a very, you know, dynamic and exciting technology industry here in the UK. Um, you know, the 500 people that are on this list have demonstrated, you know, that if you're really passionate about something and you go out there and you share that in different ways, you know, then then you can really get your message across. And I just think there's a, a lot of people out there that probably need to find their passion and, and actually, you know, do the same thing. So I think that I think if, if more people could, uh, you know, had the, took the approach and the attitude of the likes of Sue, Jeremy and Anne, then, and then I think, you know, the UK tech industry would, you know, be even more uh, dynamic. Excellent. OK, uh, time to wrap this up. So um, last one for you, Ellen. Um, if our listeners want to download a copy of The Power List, I don't know if they can do that, um, but where can they go anyway for more information about it? Okay, so the top 50 from the list will be freely available on the website, which is www.titopr.com, and that's Tito, T-Y-T-O. 
Excellent. So, um, Dr. Sue Black, OBE, Jeremy Waite, uh, Ellen Raphael and Brendan Craigie, uh, thank you all for joining the show. And of course, um, thanks also to Anne Bowden too for her time yesterday. And uh, thanks also to Marketeers for hosting us today and recording uh, the show. So just to give that URL out again, uh, you can download the top 50 um, from uh, the uh, Taito website, which is taitopr.com. But that's it for this episode. So don't forget all previous shows are available to listen to at csuitepodcast.com. Um, plus, you can subscribe to the series on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn and Stitcher. Uh, links to all those are at the top of the website too. But if you are using uh, iTunes, please, please, please do give us a positive rating and review because uh, that helps us up the business charts and uh, means me, we, we get to be a little bit more influential. You can also uh, join in the discussion around the show on our Facebook and Twitter groups, um, which again are linked uh, from the website. Um, and if you want to get involved in the series in any way, you can get in touch with me via the contact form on the website or um, you can reach me on Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith. But for now, thanks for listening. And goodbye.